Bible and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. As we mentioned, we will begin our new sermon series this morning in the book of Exodus, and Exodus chapter 1 will be our text for this morning. What we're going to do is I'm going to read Exodus chapter 1, all... uh, every verse, the whole chapter, and then what we'll do, you may have noticed um, earlier in our call to worship something similar, when I am done reading the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and if you agree with me, then you should say thanks be to God. So let's read Exodus chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. When the king of Egypt said, or then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Father, we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So begins the body of America's founding document, the Declaration of Independence. And for those of us who grew up in America, the legend of the Revolutionary War and the founding of the United States is ingrained in our identity. Regardless of your schooling, whether you went to public school, private school, or you were homeschooled, it's more than likely that you learned American history. That's part of the curriculum. And it's ingrained in us. Patriarchs like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Paul Revere. Sacred sites like Philadelphia and Boston. Events like the Boston Tea Party or the Battle of Bunker Hill. They are seared into our collective identity. We are taught that that story is also our story. We have our own national liturgy. We observe days like Independence Day, Memorial Day, and Labor Day. We stand up and we put our hand on our heart when we sing the national anthem or when we pledge allegiance to the flag. We have monuments in our capital city that serve as a type of Ebenezer for us to remember the past. If you're an American, you're taught that that story, to some degree, is your story too, that you are a part of that. In the same way, the Exodus event is really the founding of the nation Israel. It is their declaration of independence from Egypt and all of the other nations and their declaration of dependence to Yahweh, the one true creator God. This epic story is in many ways the cataclysmic event of the Old Testament. Not only does the Exodus story recount the history of the founding of the nation Israel, but it also is a prototype of the salvation that will come to the nations in Jesus Christ. Because that's true, The Exodus story is not merely the story of the foundation of Israel, but that story is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the true Israel. Since we, as Christians, New Covenant believers, we are in Christ, 
there's a sense in which the Exodus story is our story too. As we move through the story of Exodus beginning this week, chapter by chapter, we will see how Israel's story is connected to our story through the story of Jesus Christ. Season two, or not season two, I'm sorry, episode two of season four of the show King of the Hill is called Halloween. And in this episode, if you're familiar, Hank Hill, he's a good old boy, Hank Hill is in charge of the haunted house at his son Bobby's school. And the problem is that there's a new member at their church. I think the the Hills are Methodist. They live in Texas. But there's a new member at their church, and her name is Junie Harper. And Junie Harper is convinced that Halloween is nothing but devil worship. So she is working to shut Halloween down at the elementary school. Well, in protest, Hank and Bobby go and egg Junie Harper's house, and Junie knows it's them, and so she follows them home to confront them. And you got to keep in mind throughout the entire episode, Junie is quoting and often misquoting scripture. And so uh, she comes into the house, and, and she's, they're fighting about Halloween, and Junie says to Hank, she says, the complacency of fools will destroy them, Proverbs. And then Hank Hill says, get out of my house, Exodus. Hank is not entirely wrong. The title Exodus comes from the Greek word exadu. It's the Greek word exadu, which means to go out. And so uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, Exodus 19 verse 1 says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So after they had gone out after they had had the exodus from the land of Egypt. That's where we get the title of the book, Exodus. The Hebrew title of the book is the first couple words of the book, and it's uh, Vale Samot, which means these are the names. You notice Exodus 1.1, these are the names of the sons of Israel. So that's the Hebrew title of the book of Exodus. Now, I do have some qualms with uh, the way that all of these English translations translate the first verse of the book of Exodus. And I read several of them, several of them. I read the ESV, the King James, the NIV, the NASB, the CSB, the NET, and all of these versions mistranslate the uh, first verse of Exodus. Um, And so now you're thinking in your head, there's one of two realities. Either Alex is smarter than all the translation committees that have put these Bibles together, and you're like, if you know me, you're like, that can't be it. Um, if you don't know me that well, you're like, maybe, but still probably not, right? Or um, he's wrong about what he's about to say. Um, or maybe there's a third way, and that's what I'm going to offer you right now. Here's the deal. Our English teachers uh, told us that we can't begin a sentence with the word and, right? That was ingrained in us uh, throughout school. Well, but here's the deal. Moses doesn't care about proper English grammar, okay? He wrote in Hebrew, and the first word of the book of Exodus is the word and. So this should be translated, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Uh, it's the Hebrew vav. 
That's how it should be read. And the reason is because Moses is intentionally connecting Exodus to Genesis. Exodus is not starting a new story. This is a continuation of everything we've seen in the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis ends, the book of Exodus begins, okay, and now these are the names. And so this is very intentionally connected to the book of Genesis. We, we should not disconnect them. This is a continuation of the story. The book of Exodus begins uh, or continues where Genesis left off, and the book of Exodus assumes that we are familiar with the book of Genesis. A lot of the different language being used, the people being discussed, the themes, all of this is connected. The assumption is that you know and understand Genesis as you're reading through the book of Exodus. And the book of Genesis ends with the account of the rise of Joseph. Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. Joseph's brothers, out of jealousy, sold him into slavery in Egypt. And through God's providence, Joseph rose to be second in command in the nation of Egypt, only to the Pharaoh, to the king. At that time, there was a great famine that plagued the ancient Near East, and God prepared Joseph for this famine in a dream. And so Joseph led the people of Egypt to store up food so that during the famine they could eat and they could also sell the food to the surrounding nations, and that would make the nation of Egypt even greater as they collected more money and treasure. And so through those providential events, Joseph's brothers and his family, the sons of Jacob, the grandsons of Abraham, are, they come to Egypt, they come to Joseph for food, and uh, through these providential series of events, their relationship is restored. Uh, so Abraham's family settles in Egypt as the book of Genesis comes to a close. And then we're picking up here, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. The book of Exodus picks right up where the book of Genesis left off. Verses 1 through 7 of Exodus chapter 1 reveal that Jacob's family is now in Egypt. They are 70 in total. Uh, and the first thing that we notice here as we read through the chapter is that the promises of God are unfolding here, even in the most unlikely of circumstances. In Genesis chapter 1, God gave Adam the cultural mandate. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That command is then recapitulated in the covenant with Noah. Genesis 9.1 says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The promise is then further developed in Yahweh's covenant with Abraham. Abraham's covenant is spelled out in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, but we see God's initiation with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. That reads this, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that language, you see from Adam to Noah to Abraham, there's similar language. Blessing, being fruitful and multiplying. Um, 
With each covenant, the promises of God are developed further. And in Exodus 1, we begin to see the flowers of fulfillment are beginning to bud here. In Exodus 1.7, it says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So a couple things. Number one, Moses is assuming that you know all that Genesis stuff. This isn't just some random description that you know, the Israelite people like to have a lot of babies. He's letting you know that the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham is continuing here. God hasn't forgotten. He's fulfilling his promises. And notice also that the blessing of God, at least here and in these promises, is babies. God blesses Israel by giving them crying, nursing, needing their diaper-changed babies. The world tells us that babies are not a blessing. That's what Pharaoh believed, isn't it? Pharaoh believed that the Hebrew babies were a curse that he needed to protect his people from. But God tells us that babies are a blessing. And we see here in Exodus chapter 1 that the family of Abraham has grown from Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Now we're keeping in mind, Abraham's got a whole situation there that's a problem, right? With Hagar and Ishmael and his sin. But the, the, the family of promise, the child of promise, covenantally is, you got Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Those three people. That has grown to 70 people at the end of Genesis, to now, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, it's, they're the size of a nation, so much so that they've got the king of Egypt concerned at how many there are. And so Exodus chapter 1 reminds us that God is keeping his promises, but his promises are being kept in a broken world. By this point, again, there's a new pharaoh, there's a new king, and he didn't know Joseph. Now, does that mean that this pharaoh had never heard of Joseph, that he didn't take his Egyptian history classes and learn about hundreds of years ago when the Hebrew boy had the vision that led us through the famine? I'm I'm sure it doesn't mean that, that he had never heard of Joseph. I think it means he doesn't care about Joseph anymore. That was then, this is now, I'm in charge. And so he is operating out of his own self-interest and his perceived self-interest for the nation of Egypt. And this Pharaoh is scared that if a foreign army were to invade the nation of Egypt, that, um, that if the Hebrews pulled a, a Benedict Arnold of sorts, that Egypt could be overthrown. Because if all of these Hebrews join with another army, we'll just be overwhelmed. There'll be too many. And so we need to, to keep them under our thumb. And so this Pharaoh enslaves the Hebrews, the, the family of Jacob, to keep them under control. But that's not enough, you see, because he enslaves them. And then we see the text says, but they keep multiplying. They keep being fruitful. They keep having babies. This is getting out of control, even as slaves. And so what Pharaoh says is he orders the mass murder of all of the Hebrew baby boys. He tries first to do it covertly. Listen, midwives, when when she gives birth to, if you see it's a baby boy, kill it right away and then just tell her it's a stillborn. 
When that doesn't work, by the end of chapter one, the, the open law is to throw all the baby boys in the Nile River. At that point, he doesn't care whether you know or not. Um, the baby girls are permitted to live because they can be used, but the boys must die so that they do not take up arms against the Egyptians. And that is the setting in which the promises of God are being fulfilled here. I do like the ESV's translation of verse 16. Look at the middle of verse 16. It says, If it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Some translations, I think the NIV, though I could be wrong, but some translations say if it's a boy, you shall kill him. If it's a girl, you shall let her live. But the ESV is right in translating this, not as boys and girls, but as sons and daughters. These babies are not merely clumps of cells. They are not even merely boys and girls. These are sons and daughters. They are someone's sons and daughters. And covenantally, they are the sons and daughters of Abraham, the children of God. But God's grace reigns even in the midst of oppression and death. Don't you just love the Hebrew midwives in this story? Like those who helped the slaves escape in the Underground Railroad, or like others who hid Jewish refugees from the Nazis, These Hebrew midwives defy their evil government by saving these baby boys. Notice also that Scripture gives us the names of the two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. You know what the text never gives us? Pharaoh's name. Pharaoh, who at this time would have been viewed as a god, He would have been viewed as human deity in that culture, remains nameless. We have no idea who this Pharaoh is. Historians try to guess based on Egyptian history, but no one knows for sure. You know what we do know for sure? Shifra and Pua. These seemingly insignificant women who are caring for seemingly insignificant babies, are remembered forever in the eternal word of God. And we don't know this Pharaoh's name. Tell me what God values, who God views as powerful. Not Pharaoh. Eventually, this anonymous Pharaoh notices that he keeps seeing more baby boys. So the program isn't working. And so he interrogates the midwives. Their response is also money, right? They say, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They're like, these Hebrew women are legit, man. The baby's already there by the time we get there. You know, when, when each of our children were born, uh, none of them were short labors. Maybe comparatively they were, but they weren't, you know, it wasn't just like a couple hours. And so with one of the kids in particular, I don't remember who it was. Bethany would know. I feel like it's Haddon, but I might tell the story and you might see her over there shaking her head no. Uh, with one of the kids, we, we got to Royal Oak Beaumont and we were expecting to go right into labor and delivery, you know, and get, get this train rolling. And they were like, Actually, you got to go walk around the hospital for a while. And, uh, you know, 
I mean, obviously, I'm not like, should not be the primary person complaining in this situation, but I'm like, you know, come on. Uh, the Hebrew midwives say the Hebrew women are not like that. <laughs> they say that, that the, these women are vigorous, that they give birth before the midwife even gets to them. And obviously, this is, this is what they're saying uh, to Pharaoh as they disregard his mandate. And so some people will ask sometimes, well, is it sinful that the midwives lied to Pharaoh? And I, I think the answer is no. Um, verse 20 tells us that God dealt well with the Hebrew midwives. It actually says, so God dealt well with the Hebrew midwives. The word so indicates result. The result of their lying to Pharaoh is that God dealt well with them. It glorified God that they protected these babies against their evil government. Scripture commands us to obey the government unless the government is compelling us to sin against God. If the government is compelling us to sin against, against God, then it is our responsibility as Christians to disobey the government. We are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And that is where our ultimate allegiance lies. And this applied also to the Hebrew midwives, the Hebrew slaves, as they looked forward to the kingdom of Christ. As the book of Exodus opens and we read chapter one, the chief question is this, will God keep his promises? He promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. He promised that all of the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's family, Exodus, or Genesis 12, one through three. And now the family of Abraham, the ones who came from Eve and Noah, they're enslaved. And Pharaoh is systematically trying to slaughter a generation of sons. Will God keep his promise? Well, the New Testament reveals to us that in Jesus Christ, the answer is yes. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus is the true son of Abraham who brings blessing to all of the families of the earth. Matthew 1.1, Galatians 3.16. Not only that, but in our call to worship, we read from Jude chapter 5 that reveals to us that Jesus Christ himself led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. During his ministry, Jesus identified himself with Yahweh. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. We will see in Exodus chapter 3, when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh says, I am who I am. That's how he reveals himself to Moses. And so Jesus, in taking that language and applying it to himself, is saying, I am Yahweh. I'm the one who led you out of slavery in Egypt. I'm the one who made those covenants with you. Not only am I the covenant keeper, the true Israelite, I am also the covenant maker. I am Yahweh. 
I am the God who led you out of Egypt. Everything that's about to unfold in this book that we're going to go through, the story of the Exodus, is preparing us for the great and final Exodus that Jesus has come to lead. In Luke chapter 9, we read about the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain. And Luke tells us that Jesus was up there with Moses and Elijah, and they were talking about something. Luke says they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's Luke 9.31. The word departure in Greek is the word exodon. It's the same word we read from the Septuagint, Exodus 19, chapter 1. It's the same word where we get the title Exodus. So Christ was speaking with Moses and Elijah about the Exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You see, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has led us out of slavery, the slavery of sin and death, and into the promised land of eternal life. Moving forward through the book of Exodus, we will observe all of the different types and shadows that point us forward to Christ. People like Moses, events like the Passover, they were providential types that were preparing the people of God for his only begotten son. If you're not a Christian, Scripture says that even now you are enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But you can experience this spiritual exodus that we're talking about. Pastor Kevin explained it earlier. If you will repent of your sin, if you will acknowledge that God is holy and that you're a sinner and that you have sinned against him and that you deserve his judgment forever in, in a place called hell and you will look to Christ who lived righteously in your place, who died as a substitute in your place, who resurrected on the third day and you will trust in him alone, then you will be saved you will be redeemed. Where do we get the word redeemed from? From the Exodus account. God redeemed them from slavery. This is how the story of Israel connects to your story through the story of Jesus. For those who do believe, for the church, for the people of God, we understand that the story of God's people in the Old Testament is our story too. Jesus is true Israel. And so everyone who is in Christ constitutes the new Israel, the people of God, the church. Galatians 6.6 calls the church the Israel of God. Peter calls the church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9. That is language taken directly from the book of Exodus and applied to the church in the New Testament. James opens his epistle writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Some have argued that James is writing predominantly or exclusively to ethnic Jews, I don't think that's the case. I mean, I certainly think there would have been many Jewish Christians in the very early church, but James is intentionally writing to a church, and he is applying the language of Israel to the church, Jew and Gentile, the new people of God. 
And so because that's true for us as we go through the book of Exodus, and especially as we look at Exodus chapter 1, I think this morning we can draw three points of application for us. These aren't the exclusive points of application, but they are three. The first is that God inspired the account of Exodus for us. Because of the reality that we are the people of God in Christ, um, we see first that Exodus was written for us. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking about the events of the Exodus. 1 Corinthians 10. And in verse 11, Paul writes this. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So as we begin this book of Exodus today, and as we go through it, as Pastor Kevin preaches Exodus 2 next week, and as we look at Exodus 3 the week after that, we must keep in mind that this story, that this narrative, that this historical account was inspired by the divine author, the Holy Spirit, who inspired Moses to write these things down, at least in part, to instruct the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. And this includes Christ Community Church in 2022. That means there's a sense in which when the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write this, the Holy Spirit was thinking about us today. And it was written for us, for our instruction, the, one, the ones on whom the, age, the end of the ages has come. And that's because this text is ultimately pointing us forward to the true and final exodus led by Jesus. You can experience redemption from your sin. Repent and believe in the gospel. The second point of application we see is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. He may not always keep his promises in the manner or the timetable that we expect or that we want, but God does keep his promises. You know, as much as I love him, Garth was wrong. There are no unanswered prayers. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is maybe later. Sometimes the answer is this is going to be infinitely beyond what you could even come up with. But God keeps his promises. And the truth is that he is God and we are not. The truth is that if we knew everything that God knows, and if we weren't stained by sin then we would know that the way in which God keeps his promises is the best possible way. God made promises to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham. And in Exodus 1, we see that God is keeping his promise. Church, this is the pillow on which you can rest your head every night to, sound, to, to, to sleep soundly. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always until the end of the age. God keeps his promises. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. God keeps his promises. Scripture says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. God keeps his promises. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God keeps his promises. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 29. God keeps his promises. The final point of application this morning is that God is the God of life. God is the God of life. God dealt well with the Hebrew midwives because they fought against the systematic abortion of these Hebrew baby boys. Now, if you've been with us any length of time, you know that Pastor Kevin and I are both, we both are very intentional to protect the pulpit of Christ Community Church from becoming wrongly political, wrongfully political. Partisan politics have no place in Christ's pulpit. Now, that being said, issues of life, like abortion, are not merely political. They are ethical. This is not just politics. This is morality. God is the giver of life, and he alone has the authority to take life. So regardless of whether you're an elephant or a donkey or neither, you must be against murder. In Exodus 20, the sixth commandment tells us, you shall not murder. Now, I will never stand in this pulpit and tell you who to vote for, ever. But as one of your pastors, I must encourage you from God's word this morning. If you find yourself in a position that is antithetical to a culture of life, like, for instance, abortion, or any other number of issues, if you find yourself standing against life, please reconsider. Death is the last enemy, and Jesus has come to defeat death. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Did you notice as we went through this text that God is strangely absent from this pericope? He's not completely absent. He's mentioned a little bit. Maybe once or twice the name of God is in this chapter three times, maybe. Not a lot. It's sparse. We'll see next week at the end of Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, that reveals to us what God is thinking during this time of suffering for his people. Exodus 2, 23 says this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God heard the cries of the oppressed. God remembered and God knew. Two miles south of here on Van Dyke at Planned Parenthood, there are sons and daughters who will never be known by any other name than medical waste. But God knows. 
These truths may not be self-evident to everyone, but I pray this morning we have ears to hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would take your word and you would plant it deep in our hearts, that you would shape and form us into the image of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray again for anyone here at Christ Community Church or anyone who may be watching on our live stream or anyone who may stumble across this audio or video or manuscript at any point in the future, if they don't know Jesus, that your word, your spirit would take your word and would resurrect their hearts from the dead, that you would redeem them from the slavery to their sin and to the world and to the enemy. Father, we pray that through the preaching of your word and through the administration of the Lord's Supper, that we would understand that this Old Testament book is not merely about an ethnic group of people from thousands of years ago, but that this is our story, that this was written for us, Father, and that you would comfort your people with the reminder that you keep your promises. And Father, we ask that here at Christ Community Church, that we would be a people of life, that we would be a people who celebrate a culture of life, because we are the people who sing from life's first cry till final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. Father, shape us in your image, we ask for your glory and for our good. We pray in the name of your Son, the risen Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Church, rise now and come to the Lord's Supper.